Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? I know there have been times in my life where I've struggled with sleeplessness, which is why I strive to help people everywhere with theirs. I'm proud to have partnered with a new sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, which doesn't take long at all. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counselling done securely online. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions in the comfort of your own home. You can also log in to your account anytime and send a message to your counsellor when you need. You'll have access to a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counsellor network which may not be locally available in many areas. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed. Visit trybetterhelp.com forward slash bore you to sleep. That's trybetterhelp and join over 500,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Special offer for Boy to Sleep listeners with 10% off your first month at trybetterhelp.com forward slash you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from The Wonders of Optics by Fulgence Marion. Originally published in 1867, this book explores the different parts of the eye and how we see the world through it. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everyone who left a review or sent me a message during the week. Thank you to Oliver for your lovely message on Instagram. Tiger Lily, thank you for your message through the website and Instagram. And thank you to Pandora for sharing the podcast with your friends. And for all the Anchor supporters and Patreons, I thank you for continuing to support the show with your monthly donation. It really does help me to continue bringing out more and more episodes. If you do appreciate the podcast, a lovely way to say thank you is to leave a five-star review in your iTunes or your podcast app. Even one sentence helps out. It would also be awesome if you were able to share the podcast with someone who you know that may also need a good night's sleep. 
If you would like, you can say hello at boyyoutosleep.com where you can support the podcast. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at boyyoutosleep. Thank you to Twitter users Nicole Ostrander and at She's Matty for your lovely messages. I'm appreciative of you taking your time to say hello. In the meantime, lie back, relax and enjoy the readings. The Wonders of Optics Part 1 Chapter 1 The Eye The eye is at once the most wonderful and the most useful of our organs of sense. It is especially by means of the eye that we gain a knowledge of the exterior world. Our other senses are far more limited in their action. Thus, the sense of touch only extends to objects within our reach. The sense of taste is only a delicate and exquisite modification of the sense of touch. The sense of smell can only be exercised on substances that are close to us, and the use of our ears is limited by the distance at which the loudest sound ceases to impress them. But the eye has the privilege of extending its dominion, whether for mere enjoyment or for serious instruction, far beyond the limits of this little world. Not only is it the origin of all our ideas upon every object that comes within its ken, not only does it reveal to us our own position and that of our surroundings, but thanks to the discoveries of modern science, it is able to admire, on the one hand, a world of infinite minuteness that remained unknown to us for centuries, and on the other, the immeasurable immensity of the starry universe. Admirable as the eye undoubtedly is through the possession of the power of vision, it is also capable of enchanting us by its own particular beauties, not to speak of its internal mechanism, which we shall consider very fully by and by. Let us for a moment examine its outward appearance. Have you never, dear reader, been enchanted with a pair of soft and gentle eyes, or with a couple of black orbs veiled with long dark lashes, or with those wondrous eyes that rival the heavens in colour and depth, shedding on you rays of light whose mute eloquence was irresistible. If it be true that man's face is the canvas upon which the affections and desires of his mind are depicted, as soon as they are formed, 
The eyes are unquestionably the central points of the picture, and it is in them, as in a looking-glass, that every sentiment that passes across our brain is reflected. When the mind is undisturbed, says Buffon, all the parts of the face are in a state of repose, their proportion, unity, and general appearance indicate the pleasing harmony of our thoughts and the perfect calmness of our mind. But when we are agitated, the human face becomes a living picture in which the passions that disturb us are depicted with equal force and delicacy, a picture in which every emotion is expressed by a stroke, every action by a letter, so to speak, in which the quickness of the impression outstrips the will and reveals by the most sympathetic signs the image of our secret trouble. It is more especially in the eyes, adds the great naturalist, that these signs are manifested and recognised. The eye is connected with the mind more than any other organ. It seems almost to be in contact with it and to participate in all its movements. It expresses in obedience to it the strongest passions and the most tumultuous emotions as well as the gentlest thoughts and most delicate sentiments, and reproduces them in all their force and purity, just as they have sprung into existence. It transmits them with the exquisite rapidity, even to the minds of others, where they once more become impressed with all their original fire, movement and reality. The eye both receives and reflects the light of thought and the warmth of sentiment and is at once the sense of the mind and the tongue of the intellect. Persons who are short-sighted or who squint have much less of this external intelligence that dwells in the eye It is only the stronger passions that can bring the other features of the face into play that are depicted on their physiology and the effects of fine thought and delicate feeling are rendered apparent with much greater difficulty. The elegant author of La Histoire Naturale rightly thinks that we are so accustomed only to see things from the outside, that we are hardly aware how much this exterior view of everything influences the judgment of even the gravest and most thoughtful of us. Thus, we are apt to set down a man as an intellectual whose physiology does not particularly strike us, and we allow his clothes and even the manner in which he wears his hair 
to influence our judgment of him. Hence, our author goes on to say, not wholly without some show of reason, that a man of sense ought to look upon his clothes as part of himself, because they really are so in the eyes of others, and play an important part in the general idea that is formed of him who wears them. The vivacity or languor of the movement of the eyes forms one of the chief characteristics of facial expression, and their colour helps to render this characteristic more striking. The different colours seen in the eye are dark hazel, or black, as it is generally called, light hazel, blue, greenish-grey, dark grey, and light grey. The velvety substance that gives the colour to the iris is arranged in little ramifications and specks, the former being directed towards the centre of the eye, the latter filling up the gaps between the threads. Sometimes they are both arranged in so regular a manner that instances have been known in which the irises of different eyes have appeared to be so much alike that they seemed to have been copied from the same design. These little threads and specks are held together by a very fine network. The commonest colours seen in the eye are hazel and blue, and it mostly happens that both these colours are found in the same individual, giving rise to that peculiar greenish-grey hue that is far from being uncommon. Buffon thinks that blue and black eyes are the most beautiful, but this, of course, is a matter of taste. It is true that the vivacity and fire which play so important a part in giving character to the eye, are more perceptible in dark eyes than in those whose tints are lighter. Black eyes, therefore, have greater force of expression, while in blue eyes there is more softness and delicacy. In the former, we see a brilliant fire, which sparkles uniformly on account of the iris, which is of the same colour throughout, giving in all parts the same reflection, but a great difference may be perceived in the intensity of the light reflected from blue eyes, from the fact of the various tints of colour producing different reflections, there are some eyes that are remarkable for being almost destitute of colour and appear to be constituted in an abnormal manner. The iris is tinted with shades of blue and grey of so light a hue that it appears quite white in some places. The shades of hazel in such eyes are so light 
that they are hardly distinguishable from grey and white, in spite even of the contrast of colour. For our part, we think that the beauty of the eye consists not so much of its colour, or even in its harmony with the rest of the face, but in its expression. There are also numerous instances of green eyes. This colour is, of course, much less frequent than blue, grey or hazel. It often happens, too, that these two eyes vary in colour in the same individual. This defect is not confined to the human species, being shared by the horse and the cat. In most other animals, the colour of the two eyes is always similar. The colour of the eye in most animals is either hazel or grey. Aristotle imagined that grey eyes were stronger than blue, that those persons whose eyes are prominent cannot see so far as others, and that brown eyes are less valuable in the dark than those of another tint. But modern investigations have failed to bear out the ancient philosopher's ideas with regard to the human eye. Although the eye appears to move about in every direction, it has in reality only one movement, that of rotation round its centre, by means of which the eyeball rises or falls, or passes from side to side at will. In man the eyes are parallel with each other in relation to their axes. He can consequently direct them at pleasure upon the same object. But in most animals this parallelism is wanting, in some cases, the eyes of animals are set almost back to back, rendering it impossible for them to see the same object with both eyes at once. Buffon makes the remark that after the eyes, the eyebrows contribute more strongly than any other part of the face towards giving character to the physiognomy being inasmuch as they differ in their nature from the other features, more apparent by contrast, and hence strike us more than any other portion of the countenance. They are, in fact, a shadow in the picture, bringing its colour and drawing into strong relief. The eyelashes also contribute their effect, when they are long and thick, they overshadow the eye, making its glance appear softer and more beautiful. The ape is the only other animal besides man that possesses two eyelashes, the rest having them only on the upper eyelid. Even in man, they are more abundant in the upper eyelid than in the lower. The eyebrows have but two movements, upward and downward, 
governed by the muscles of the forehead. In the action of frowning, we not only lower them, but move them slightly towards each other. The eyelids serve to protect the eyeball and keep the cornea from becoming dry. The upper eyelid has the power of raising and lowering itself, the lower one being almost destitute of movement. Although the motion of the eyelids is an effort of will, there are times when it is impossible to keep them open, as for instance when we are overpowered by sleep, or when the eyes are suddenly subjected to the effects of strong light. The eyelid is a most admirable arrangement for the protection of the eye, and it is almost impossible to admire this provision of nature too much. Even when we confine ourselves to an outward examination of it, it is not merely the outward mechanism and motion of the eyelids, nor the colour of the eyes that constitutes their beauty. We have already said that the leading characteristic of the eye was expression. It is the expression which causes the eye to appear and to speak, to fire up suddenly, to sparkle with flashes of light, to languish or conceal itself underneath its lashes, to raise itself with inspiration, or to pierce the abyss of thought, just according to the particular sentiment governing the mind at the moment. Hence, it is expression that constitutes the true beauty of the eye. Everyone knows instances of eyes which, while at rest, would never be noticed by anybody, but which, when once animated by intense eloquence, lend to the voice of their possessor an unexpected power which moves and transports the listener to an extent infinitely beyond that resulting from the simple spoken words. Enough, however, has been said upon the external aspect of the human eye. We will, therefore, at once endeavour to penetrate the circle in which are contained the wonders that this little book is intended to describe. The object of these lines is not so much to describe the beauty of man's glances, nor the value of his senses, but rather to make known those illusions to which the most sagacious of all his senses is apt to fall a prey. But before entering the temple, it was but far right to have bestowed a little admiration upon the façade. By the way, as we are about to describe many illusory wonders, do not let us commence by deceiving ourselves with regard to our first marvel, the eye itself. A great philosopher calls the eyes the windows of the soul, 
and although meant as a poetical image, the saying is not far from the truth. For the optic nerve by which we see external objects is an extension of the nerves of the brain, whose functions and actions are an unfathomable mystery. Of all the senses, says an ardent admirer of nature, the sight is certainly that which furnishes the mind with the quickest and most widely extended perceptions. It is the source of the richest treasures of the imagination and of our ideas of the beauty, order and unity of the world around us. How unhappy are those whom a hard fate has deprived of the sense of sight from their birth. Alas, the finest day and the darkest night differ in nothing as far as they are concerned. The light of heaven never brings joy into their hearts. The enameled beauties of a bed of flowers the varied plumage of the peacock. The glories of the rainbow are alike unknown to them. They cannot contemplate from the mountain height the beauties of the valley beneath, the fields golden with the harvest, the meadow smiling with verdure, and watered by winding rivers and the habitations of man dotted about here and there, over the surface of this magnificent picture. To them is unknown the sight of the mighty ocean, and the innumerable legions of the cloud army of heaven are to them as if they did not know existed. The impenetrable obscurity which surrounds them allows them neither the contemplation of what is grandest in man's outward aspect, nor even the admiration of those qualities which they themselves would hold most dear. A strong sentiment of pity should, therefore, animate the breast of every right-thinking man, when he considers the unhappy condition of those who are born blind. The eye infinitely surpasses in its complexity and beauty of structure all the other organs of sense, and is most unquestionably the most marvellous object that the human mind is capable of examining and understanding. Let us first examine the external parts of this wonderful organ with what a singular system of entrenchments and defences do we find the eye provided. It is itself placed in the head at a certain depth and surrounded on all sides by solid bone so that it is only with the greatest difficulty that it is heard by accident from without. The eyebrows also play their part as protection to the eye and prevent the perspiration from entering and irritating the organ. 
The eyelids, too, are always ready to rush to the rescue, whether to protect the eye from outward attacks or to shade it from too strong a light during sleep. The eyelashes not only add to the beauty of the eye, but they shade it from the too brilliant light of the sun and act as advanced guards to prevent the entrance of dust or any other foreign body with which the eyes might be injured. But its internal structure is still more admirable. The globe of the eye is most spherical and measures nearly one inch in diameter. The figure here is a view of the eyeball, showing the details of its structure. The various membranes surrounding it have been cut away in order that it may be better examined. If we commence our examination by the exterior portion of the front, we shall first immediately find the eyelashes a perfectly transparent. It is by means of this ingenious and inimitable structure of the eye that external objects pass from the domain of the material world into that of the mind and become accessible to every faculty of our brain of its own accord and without apparently any effort of our own will does this marvellous mechanism adapt itself to all the variations of distance and intensity of light a power possessed by no instrument as yet constructed by the hand of man, being capable as it is of distinguishing instantaneously between the distance of the remotest nebulae and that of the letters forming this page. This wonderful organ, writes Brewster, may be considered as being the sentinel that guards the passage between the world of matter and that of mind, and as the medium through which they interchange all their communications. The optic nerve perceives the objects written on the retina by the hand of nature and conveys them to the brain in all their integrity of form and colour. The path of the rays of light and the formation of images upon the retina are something that we will show throughout the book. Seeing that the images of all objects appear on our retina upside down, the student is naturally disposed to ask how it happens that we do not see them in that position. Physiologists and natural philosophers have advanced numerous theories on the subject. Some, with Buffon, admit at once that this is the habit and education of the eye, that we see objects unreversed. Others, like the great physiologist Mueller, imagine that as we see everything upside down, and not a single object only, we have no points of comparison and practically ignore the reversal. The truth, however, appears to be that it is the brain and not the eye 
that possesses the power of determining the real position of what we see, that the eye alone has no power of determining the positions of objects by itself, may be easily proved by showing a person an astronomical object, such as the moon through a telescope, unless the observer has already been familiarized with the appearance of our satellite, he will not know whether the image he sees is reversed or not. It is the brain, therefore, and the brain only, that has the power of determining the position of objects around us, without taking into consideration the reversed picture of them, that is depicted on our retina. The student who takes an interest in the structure of this important organ would do well to procure a sheep's or bullock's eye from the butchers as they are very similar to the human eye. The ordinary distance of distinct vision for small objects, such as the letters of a book, is from 10 to 12 inches, but possibly there do not exist two pairs of eyes in the world whose foci are the same. Even in the same individual, it frequently happens that the focal length of the eyes differs considerably. In some persons, the focus of the eye is so reduced that they are obliged to bring the object they are examining within six and even four inches of their eyes before they can see it. This defect is known ordinarily as short sight and results from the too great convexity of the cornea and the crystalline lens. It is corrected by wearing spectacles with concave glasses. Others again, on the contrary, place the book or object they are looking at at a greater distance from the eye that named. Such people are called long-sighted and the defect results from the too great flatness of the cornea and the crystalline lens. The fault is, of course, corrected by the use of spectacles containing convex lenses. Long-sightedness is generally the result of old age, and it may be taken as a fact that the older we grow, the flatter becomes the crystalline lens. Hence, short-sighted people have been known to recover their sight perfectly as they advance in years through the natural process of the flattening of the crystalline lens. These matters, however, will be more fully treated of when we begin to speak of the properties of lenses of different forms of curvatures. And that is a chapter that we'll have to wait for another reading, because... That concludes the readings. I hope you're feeling drowsy, and I hope you're ready for a good night's rest. If you're not quite tired yet, you're always welcome to listen to another episode of the Boy to Sleep podcast. 
In the meantime, I'll be working on bringing you another episode very soon. Good night.